Good morning, family. We're in the midst of a series we began a couple of weeks ago looking at Jesus' last words on the cross. Looking at seven statements that Jesus made while He hung on the cross. Each one of which has wonderful treasure, wonderful riches of truth for us to discover as we look at them. Uh, but if you're following along, you'll notice that we, we're actually a week behind because of the snow we had a few weeks ago. So this week we're looking at the third of these statements of Jesus from the cross. And we're going to be in John chapter 19. I encourage you to take out your Bible. If you didn't bring one, there should be one in front of the pew in front of you. Turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 19. We studied the first two sayings of the cross in, in previous weeks. The first, both of those come from Luke chapter 23. The first saying of Jesus from the cross is a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second word was a word of salvation as Jesus spoke to one of the criminals who was next to him who had turned to Jesus and asked for mercy. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Today we come to the, the third statement and we find this one as we said here in John 19. The scene at the cross was a gory and gruesome theme. You'll recall that through the night before the, the cross, Jesus had been taken and brutalized by soldiers, beaten all through the night to the point where He was unrecognizable, mangled beyond recognition. He was scourged with whips, ripping open, ripping his back to shreds. A crown of thorns, big thorns, was pushed into, embedded into his skull. And as he is on the cross now, a shell of a man, he hangs naked, blood running from his many wounds, including, of course, the spikes in his wrists and feet. It's not only a gory and gruesome scene, but it is one that, a scene that is heartless and cruel. As he hangs in agony, struggling for every breath, you see, for death on a cross is a combination of not only all the wounds and the blood loss and the exposure to the elements, but primarily it is from suffocation, difficulty to breathe. You have to raise up and it's so painful to do that and, and fluid building up in the lungs through all of these things. And uh, as he hangs there struggling and agonizing, the crowd of soldiers and religious leaders and a mob they have assembled hurls abuses at Him verbally. They mock, they spit, they curse, they insult. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that there was, at that scene, there was a Jesus contingent there. Matthew and Mark both say that there were many women 
those who were supportive of Jesus, and each of them named three among those women. The Gospel of Luke adds that there were acquaintances of Jesus and women. So there were others there. But all three of those Gospels tell us that this Jesus contingent, these friendly faces were off in the distance they watched from a ways off. John, however, as we come here to John 19, gives us a little insight we would not have without his Gospel on this. Verse 25 of chapter 19 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. At some point that morning, a small group of these who cared about Jesus moved from being off in the distance and came near to the cross. Five of them to be exact, these four women that we just named, Jesus' mother Mary and her sister and Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas, those four, and also we find in the next verse the disciple that Jesus loved, Jesus' beloved friend and follower John. Five of them come near the cross. And it's the presence of this little group that leads to Jesus' third saying, His third words from the cross. This morning as we look at these, I want us to notice five important characteristics of this third saying from the cross. The first thing I noticed this morning I want to call our attention to is that it is there is affection in this saying. It is deep love and deep affection for Jesus that has caused this group of five to overcome their fear and to come near the cross. Their love for Jesus overcame their fear of the risk that it involved. You see, when the religious leaders and when the Roman government come together to condemn someone whom they view as a potential threat or as a threat, for you to associate with that person puts you in potential jeopardy. You just might be the next person hanging up there. So it's perfectly understandable that those who knew Jesus and care about Him are off in the distance. Out, hopefully, out of you know, out of notice of the soldiers and the and the religious leaders and the angry, abusive crowd, hanging out on the fringes. There they are. It's perfectly understandable. Before we get any of us are too hard on them, I, I wonder how often we chicken out and wimp out and are afraid of what people might think of us when they if they thought we were a follower of Jesus. And we sometimes kind of hide it, sadly. But these five came near. They came near where they were easily in sight of Jesus. And their affection is evident because they are there. One great old pastor said that when Jesus saw His mother and, and the disciple whom He loved standing there, that in this vast ocean of hate, 
there was now for Jesus a tiny island of love and understanding. Verse 25, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, It was out of the affection of these folks for Jesus and out of Jesus' affection for them that Jesus speaks. Jesus' words here are born out of affection and concern. The second thing I notice as I look at this saying of Jesus, this third saying from the cross, is I understand that it's a word of separation. Look again at verse 26. As Jesus speaks, notice that John records, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. It's worth noticing how Jesus addresses His mother here. He doesn't say, Mom, look at your son. He says, Woman. Now, in our modern day usage, guys, I don't recommend talking to your mom or your wife for that matter and say, Woman. It just doesn't sit well. In our modern usage, it, it comes across as, as some way of disrespect, but it, it was not here. Certainly because we know Jesus, but also simply in the culture. To, to use the word woman to address a woman was a title of respect often used in, in addressing a queen or someone of noble standing woman. And it was not out of place for Jesus to use here in addressing His mother. I'm sure that Jesus likely, as He was growing up, referred to His mother as mom or mother. Probably called her that. But it's interesting to notice that Jesus doesn't hear. Matter of fact, in, in, in nowhere in Scripture do we find a record of Jesus referring to His mother as mother. The only times He directly addresses her, there's only a couple, He says, woman. I find that interesting. But I think we see it perhaps foreshadowed back in Jesus' youth. At age 12, you recall that at the temple, Jesus at age 12 was in the temple talking to the religious leaders. Mom and Dad, they had come there to celebrate the Passover. Mom, Dad, all the family had taken off and everybody thought Jesus was with them and He was back at the temple talking to all the religious leaders. You recall that? And Mary and Joseph a day later realized Jesus isn't here and they, they go rushing back to Jerusalem looking all over for Him. They find Him in the temple and Mary vents a little at Jesus as any mother would do. And Jesus responds and He says, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be about My Father's business? I think from the beginning here, what we understand is that Jesus, uh, Jesus' primary allegiance, His primary priority was always His Father's business, His heavenly Father's business. Jesus, the Scripture tells us, returned home with them and was submissive to them, but the day was coming when the normal relationship of a child and parents would be superseded by His relationship with the Father above. And now on the cross, 
the mother-son relationship is permanently altered. As Mary's son, this day becomes Mary's Savior. This is a word of separation as Jesus makes it clear. There's a change here. Woman, behold your son. A surrogate here, John. For the record, by just it's not part of the text here, but just for the record, Mary is not the mother of God, as some say. She is the mother of Jesus in His humanity, but not in His deity. Jesus has always existed for all eternity as God, and as for all eternity as God the Son. There's always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear in this. We do recognize Mary as a virtuous woman who God chose for this unique and wonderful role to give birth to Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. But we do not worship Mary. That is contrary to Scripture Contrary, actually, to Jesus' words Himself. Jesus spoke against elevating Mary to a special place of worship or honor. Luke chapter 11, a woman in the crowd, as Jesus was speaking, as Jesus said this, as He said these things, Luke 11:27, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and, and said, Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Jesus' response was a little surprising, but He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. In other words, those who hear and keep God's Word are worthy of more honor than being Jesus' mother. Anyway, back to our text here. Jesus' statement here is a word of separation Mary's role as mother is she is relinquishing in a sense his uh Jesus back to his father. And there's a new relationship, as I said, with Jesus, her son, now becoming her savior. Back to verse twenty six. Jesus says to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Verse 27, Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The third characteristic of this statement of Jesus is it's a word about provision. It's a statement of provision. I don't think any of us can really begin to imagine what Mary must have felt as she stood there that day. It is painful to watch someone you love die. Many of you have been there. It's a painful time. How much more so for a parent to watch their son or daughter die. Again, some of you have been there. 
then how much more horrifying it must be to watch them suffer, your son or daughter, suffer in bloody agony. And then how absolutely unthinkable while they are doing so to see and to hear the jeers and the taunts and the cheering and the laughter of people mocking your child. I can't imagine. Of course, we might remember back in Luke chapter 2, as according to the Old Testament law, Mary and Joseph brought their infant son to the temple to present him to the Lord. You recall that. And there, when they came to the temple, they encountered an old man, a righteous, godly man, named Simeon, whom God had placed there that day. Simeon came up to them as the Holy Spirit had revealed to him who this was, the Messiah, the Promised One. And you recall that he blessed them and he spoke prophecy about Jesus. And then he said these words to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. That prophecy is being fulfilled this day at the cross as Mary sees her son. And in a way that I know that only mothers can, she feels his pain. She is suffering and anguishing along with Jesus there. And make no mistake, Jesus is indeed in utter physical pain. The Romans had undertaken crucifixion as a moment, as a, as the means of punishment and execution precisely because they had determined that it was the most painful and the longest lasting painful death that they could devise. Jesus is in physical pain, but more than that, as we will see in the next few weeks, Jesus' spiritual suffering is even greater than His physical suffering. What is significant is in the midst of all of this that He is sensitive and compassionate to the suffering and the needs of those He loves. William Barclay, a great old commentator, wrote this in his commentary. He says, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus in the agony of the cross in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of His mother when He was taken away. You see, Jesus on the cross is occupied in the most important event of human history. He is there dying in our place, bearing the weight of our sin, purchasing our salvation, and yet in the midst of that, He sees and understands Mary's need for care and support. And He pauses to provide for her. This should be of marvelous encouragement to you and to me. If Jesus takes care of her at such a time as this, brothers and sisters, is He not aware of 
And will He not take care of us? Jesus always remembers and He always cares for those whom He loves. How do we know He loves us? Well, there is no greater love. Jesus said that one lays down his life for his friends. As I quoted from Romans 5, 8 earlier, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take comfort in this word from the cross, for it is a word of assurance to you and me that He provides for us. He cares for us. The fourth thing I want us to note from this word on the cross is that it's a word, a statement, a saying of obligation. Mary is presumably a widow. The last time that we see Joseph in the biblical narrative is back at that passage I mentioned in Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is at the temple at age 12 and the parents come looking for him. Joseph is there. But after that, he disappears from the scene in the Scriptures. Of course, we know nothing else of Jesus' life from that time from 12 until He emerges and begins His ministry. But early in His ministry, we find in, in the Gospel of John and, uh, that Jesus attends a wedding in Cana. His mother is there, but there is no mention of Joseph. Right after that wedding, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus' disciples go along with us and it says as well that His mother went along and His brothers went along, but there is no mention of Joseph. So sometime between then and back when He was twelve, Joseph has most certainly died. Mary is a widow. That's significant because Jesus is the oldest son and in Jewish culture He has the responsibility, the obligation to care for His mother. By the way, that's not just Jewish culture. It is biblical command. Scripture is clear. Honor your father and mother, Exodus chapter 20.12. We are to honor them in many ways. Caring for them is one of those. Proverbs 23.22 says, Do not despise your mother when she is old. We are to look out for our parents when they get older. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, and we won't go there, but you may remember that, that He is calling them out for their hypocrisy. He often called them out for their great hypocrisy, but he said in this case, they elevated and used their traditions to nullify God's Word. God's Word says, honor your father and mother. And He says, but you've taken your traditions and built into your traditions loopholes. Loopholes in the letters of your own traditions that say, oh, we can't help our mom and dad because all our resources are tied up over here serving God. Jesus said, you bunch of hippos. Later in the New Testament, the Scripture will say, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Honoring our parents is a sacred obligation. And here on the cross, Jesus, who is our perfect example, our, the perfect pattern for us to follow, He sets the example by meeting every obligation, including the obligation of a dutiful son who should take care of his mother in so doing to honor her. We are to honor our parents not just when we feel like it, not just when it is convenient. May I say that all family obligations, whether we're talking obligations as parents or obligations as children or as spouses, all family obligations are seldom convenient. Have you noticed that? The things that we need to do and ought to do are rarely convenient. And we often do not feel like it. Even doing spiritual work does not exclude us from the responsibilities and the obligations that we have in family. As parents, children, spouses. Jesus had the ultimate excuse. He's on the cross paying for the sin of the world. I don't think any of us have an excuse that good. Yet there He pauses to meet the obligation to care for His mother. He could have done that somewhere else. I think He chose to do that from the cross so that we would get the point. If you're going to follow Me, meet your obligations. I get it. In this broken world, there are difficulties. Broken people, broken families. Abandonment, abuse, hurt, all exist in families. For some of you, that's your situation. Meeting this obligation, honoring your father and mother, caring for your children, your obligation as a spouse. It may not be so simple. It may require much thought and prayer and how you do these. But for most of us, the application of honoring our parents is really quite simple and very practical. Kids, you're at home, obey your parents. Scripture is very plain. We honor our parents in our attitudes with our actions. We should speak res respectfully to them. We should speak honorably of them. should not exploit them, not take advantage, misuse the, the kindnesses of our family. We should provide and care for them when they are in need and when they are old. Much more we could say there, but let me move on. The last characteristic I want to note about this word of Jesus from the cross is a characteristic of connection. I notice that Jesus places Mary into John's care. Woman, behold your son. John is standing there. Son, behold your mother. When we think about that, how Jesus places Mary into the care of His beloved friend and disciple, 
it ought to raise the question, why doesn't Jesus place Mary into the care of His brothers? See, Jesus had brothers and sisters. That may surprise some of you, but shouldn't if you read the Scripture. The Gospel of Mark chapter 6 makes it quite clear. The people say, is this not the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? He had four brothers and sisters, at least two, maybe more. Matthew chapter 13, you see the same thing. Why didn't Jesus put and assign Mary to their care? Our text doesn't tell us why. Let me just suggest a couple of reasons. One is perhaps just out of expediency. The brothers weren't there. John was. Brothers probably, are, they live in Galilee. They're probably up in Galilee. John, the beloved friend and follower, is there. Part of Jesus' purpose in, in committing her to His care may be to extricate, to remove her from the situation. Perhaps He's looking there at Mary and understands that this woman is at the breaking point. She has seen all she needs to see. It's interesting, it says that from that hour, He took her, the disciple took her to His own home. It says there in verse 27. It implies that perhaps John took her away just right then, very shortly after this. He says, you know, it's time to go. I think it's very possible. It also says there that uh, if that's the case, that, that it's implying that John, though he lives in Galilee, had access to a home, a place to stay there, a place to take Mary to where she can be comforted and, and uh, she doesn't need to see the rest of of this scene. Maybe that's what's happening. So it's a a move of expediency, just what needs to be done right now. I think while that might be the case, I think there's more to the story and more to this. I think it also has to do with relationship. You see, Jesus' brothers at this point were not believers. Many people believed and followed Jesus. There were large crowds that followed Him around, but Jesus' brothers were not among those who believed. We go back to John chapter 7, and without getting into the whole story, just this verse, for not even His brothers believed in Him. Jesus knows that the comfort that His mother needs here really is spiritual family more than biological family. She needs to be with others who believed and followed and loved Jesus. And if that is indeed what is moving Jesus here to do this, He's simply putting into practice what He Himself had said. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, Behold, his mothers and brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. 
But he replied to the man who told him, Jesus said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his arm, his hand towards his disciples, he said, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. What Jesus is saying is that the connection, the unity, the community between believers, between those who are connected to His Father, that connection runs deeper than the connection of blood. And the connection of biology. Many of us know that by experience. That the connection with other believers is warmer and deeper than the connection with our own flesh and blood. And it's because we are connected deeply. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that we are all believers baptized by one Spirit into one body. The text goes on to say that we are members of that body like members of our physical body. We are connected. We are interconnected and we are interdependent. As believers in Jesus Christ, that's a reality. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4-6 through says that that you and I have been united in one body by one Spirit, as 1 Corinthians 12 says. But he goes on to say that we are further connected, that we are called to one hope, and that we share one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. We are connected on the deep level of our soul and spirit because we are connected to the same Father. And so Jesus understands, I think, as He is connecting Mary to His disciple, that He is connecting her on a level where she needs to be connected in the spiritual family. I also notice that while Jesus has concern for Mary's need, I notice how He doesn't meet it. Jesus often in His ministry met met needs by miracles. But here He meets Mary's need not through a miracle, but through a faithful believer. May I say that that is the way that He still today, generally, most often meets needs? It's through spiritual family. Dear church, I want to remind us this morning as I wrap this up. God intends for us as believers in Jesus Christ to be deeply connected to one another. That's why, by the way, virtual church doesn't cut it. I read an article this past week that says how the church as we know it is dead. It's going to be replaced very soon by the virtual church where we all just tune in on our phones. And I say, well, some people may think so, but that will never cut it as church. That's not what Jesus intends at all. Nor will spectator church. That is how some people view church, where we just show up and we put in our time. We go through the stuff, the rituals that are there. 
And uh, then we, after watching the show, we clock out and go home. Now, spectator church isn't what the church in the New Testament is called to be. Nor will occasional church ever accomplish what Jesus intends the church to be. That's where we just show up whenever it's convenient. Whenever it doesn't conflict with our sports or our hobbies. Hebrews 10 says we must not neglect the assembling of ourselves together. We are to live out this connection that we have in Christ Jesus. We are to live it out in community in a local church. We are to be family. We are to know one another. We are to befriend one another. We are to comfort one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. We are to encourage one another. We are to build up one another. We are to stimulate one another to love and good works. Just to use a few of the phrases that the Scripture uses for what the church is to be and do. All that to say, frankly, I see so many of you doing these very things. And it thrills my heart. You send cards to one another. You make calls. You prepare meals. You pray for one another. You mow someone else's lawn. You clean someone else's gutters. You meet needs in the family. Hardly a day goes by when I don't hear of multiple things like this that you all are doing for one another. And that is the way it ought to be. You bless my socks off. And I say, keep it up. Let us abound in such things. Let us be rich in good works, the Scripture says. Let us be faithful and abound in doing good works to all men and especially to those of the household of faith. That is part of the lesson here from the cross. There's a connection that should exist among us a family. Even in the midst of Jesus' own extreme suffering, we see His compassion and His provision for Mary. May that cause us to rest in the assurance of His compassion and His provision for us. And may that likewise motivate us and move us to be faithful in our duties and compassionate in our relationships with our biological family and with our forever family, the family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, thank You for this Word from Jesus on the cross. How much is here? There may be someone here who has yet to, to place their faith and trust in Jesus. I trust that through this and through everything that has been said this morning, they would understand that You loved them so much that Jesus, You sent Jesus. God became man to die in our place, to bear our sin, that we might be saved. 
as the Scripture says, simply by believing in Him, by trusting Him as our Savior. Then for all of us who know Him, may these words move us to love You more and be faithful in loving and caring for others. It not only ministers to us and meets our needs, but it brings great honor and glory to You. And that's our desire. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.